3: NFL scout for Bleacher Report, Doug Farrar. There is a
2: defiance in creative expression when you have an administration that wants to shut it all down. There's a rebellion to that. There is a there is a futuristic pushing forward of I don't know how r you are on this thing, so I'll just say, "F you, Trump." You know, I'm going to produce this beauty. I'm going to take the football discussion a little bit further. And if it intersects, like, with the Kaepernick tape piece, that's great. To me, it's all important. And it is more important than ever for whether it's you doing all your writing and your podcast or me doing what I do or anyone, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to say to themselves, something I do is more meaningless than it used to be because Donald flipping Trump is the president, you look at a guy like Kaepernick who has experimented with a vegan diet and has, you know, lost a lot of weight and oh now he's you know too small to beat. you know. There is always an excuse to shun a player who speaks his mind freely. Kaepernick is going to go his own way. I would bet that half the guys who have a problem with him being an individual don't even know that they have a problem with him.
3: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we speak to former Sports Illustrated journalist and current lead NFL scout for Bleacher Report, Doug Farrar. He's one of the sharpest political people I know, so we are going to speak to him about Colin Kaepernick, political athletes, but more importantly, what it means to be a sports writer amidst the insane maelstrom of chaos that exists today in Trump's America. Also, I've got a special Just Sit Your Ass Down award for Stephen A. Smith, including the response by Michael Bennett to Stephen A. Smith's ridiculous, ridiculous rant about Colin Kaepernick and Michael Bennett being enemies of democracy. I've also got some choice words, and these are very important, about Robert Mueller and his appointment as special counsel to investigate Donald Trump, not about the investigation or mainstream politics or anything of the sort, but looking at Robert Mueller's Previous high profile investigation into the Ray Rice incident and whether the National Football League and Roger Goodell fundamentally covered up or tried to cover up an egregious act of domestic violence. I think Robert Mueller's attitude towards that case actually tells us a great deal. In addition, I also, of course, have a Just Stand Up award to a dear friend, Atan Thomas. I will explain why. And there is an email that I want to share with all of you that I'm very excited to do, and maybe you can help us out. But first, time for the part of the show we call the Just Stand Up Award and the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. First and foremost, Just Stand Up Award. This one is painful uh, to even have to share with everybody, but it goes to my dear friend Etan Thomas, 10-year NBA veteran, who I co-host another show with that's available in podcast form called The Collision. Uh, Etan Thomas has worked tirelessly on what I'll call the Betty Shelby case, who is the sergeant in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who killed the unarmed Terrence Crutcher. I hate that people call it the Terrence Crutcher case as if he is the one on file, like when they called it the Trayvon Martin case and not the George Zimmerman case. Never forget Betty Shelby. She is the one who was accused of manslaughter, and she is the one who should have been convicted of manslaughter. How do I know this? There was video of her committing this heinous crime. Atan worked tirelessly on this case. People probably know that Betty Shelby was found innocent, even though there was tape of her killing Terrence Crutcher. And I know that Atan is in a lot of pain about this. He worked very hard. Tulsa is his hometown so, I just wanted to give a shout out and love to Atan Thomas. We're not going to forget the name Terrence Crutcher. We're definitely not going to forget the name Betty Shelby. And we're going to keep pushing forward for justice. And speaking of which, and this connects intimately to the Just Sit Your Ass Down award, let's hear the words of the person who truly needs to sit down, Stephen A. Smith.
4: Unlike millions of Americans who no doubt abhor the candid, occasional controversial comments that come out of the mouths of the modern day athlete, I almost never have a problem with Michael Bennett. Quite frankly, he's usually smart, incisive, conscientious, and most importantly, fearless. So with that in mind, Mr. Bennett will have to forgive me for asking him this simple question. What in the hell has happened to you? In case you missed it, Bennett is coming to the defense of Colin Kaepernick these days. He's proud that Kaepernick has dedicated his life to quote-unquote creating change, that Kaepernick has stood in the eye of the storm, standing firm in the face of death threats and other forms of vitriol. Bennett even explained further why he'd love to have Kaepernick as a teammate in Seattle because the Seahawks coach Pete Carroll, teammates who give back to the community, and Russell Wilson, who's quote, built around community, end quote. Yet he conveniently left out Kaepernick's refusal to vote, and his irresponsible stance in choosing to publicize that reality. To me, that's shocking, specifically because the usual conscientious Bennett failed to take that into consideration. If Bennett, or any other black athlete for that matter, is going to be quick to point out everyone from Malcolm X to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the sacrifices they've made towards civil rights, perhaps it's time to remember the three civil rights workers, Andrew Goodman, Mickey Schwerner, and James Cheney murdered in june of 1964 in mississippi trying to get african americans in the south registered to vote they are dead they sacrificed their lives so many others have shed real blood real sweat real tears and it damn sure wasn't while they're in the midst of making 12 million dollars in a season and by the way unlike kaepernick who's still looking for a job these days those individuals are not alive to modify their positions So go ahead and root for Kaepernick to get a job. Get him to Seattle, Michael Bennett. Remind the world he's truly a talent any NFL team should consider. But if you're gonna delve further and try to treat him like he's some kind of martyr, do me a favor. Remember the real ones that represented first, not just the ones you happen to be pretty damn cool with. Oh, my God.
3: Sit your ass down. This is such a circle of stupid... You literally don't know where to begin. First and foremost, I got to start with this. Stephen A. Smith even using the deaths of James Chaney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner to bash Michael Bennett and Colin Kaepernick makes me physically ill. I knew Andrew Goodman's mother, Carolyn, an amazing person, a civil rights activist of the First Order, inspired by the killing of her son to devote her life to social justice. She would have hated, and I want to really underline this, hated the thought of her son being used as a stick to bash someone outspoken against racism like Colin Kaepernick. She especially would have hated it because... Carolyn Goodman was a foe of, guess what, police violence. Why was she such a foe of extrajudicial murder? Because, remember, please, her son was killed, not by random Klansmen in Philadelphia, Mississippi, but by members of the Neshoba County Sheriff's Department. And that, of course, is the very kind of police violence that Colin Kaepernick is standing against. Look, get the names of Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner out of your mouth, Stephen A. Smith. You're frankly not worthy to mouth them unless it's just to say, hey, Colin Kaepernick is in the best tradition of heroes like Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner. The second thing, though, let's get beyond that for a second. Stephen A. Smith tries to make politics all about voting. I would make the case that voting is literally the least you can do. Literally, the least you can do. That doesn't mean that voting is all you should do. That doesn't mean anybody even has to vote. I will always defend somebody's right to not vote in this system. Yes, people fought and died for the right to vote. People like Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Michael Schwerner. But what they fought and died for was to end the disenfranchisement of an entire race of people who were being shut out of the system just because of the color of their skin. Colin Kaepernick... He did not vote because he felt like the candidates did not represent his politics. Ooh, that siren is the steam coming out of my ears. I hope everybody heard that. And let me tell you something. Politics is not just about voting. It's about civic engagement. And I would love to compare the civic engagement of Colin Kaepernick and Michael Bennett versus Stephen A. Smith. Let's do it. Let's put it on the table. Let's measure what Colin Kaepernick and Michael Bennett do in the community, versus Stephen A. Smith. And two last points, too, about this. I'm speaking about this right now on the birthday of Malcolm X. As you probably heard, Stephen A. Smith invoked the name of Malcolm X to bash Colin Kaepernick, to bash Michael Bennett. Stephen A. Smith knows less about history than Donald Trump. Malcolm X was such a foe of the two-party system, such a foe of the idea that democracy means you have to choose just between Democrats and Republicans. Malcolm X said, neither the jackass nor the elephant. Read the ballot or the bullet speech by Malcolm X. You should read it, because Stephen A. Smith clearly has not. And then just one last point about this voting as well, the voting issue. Part of Stephen A. Smith's narrative, and you probably heard it in his comments, It's strongly, strongly implied that Colin Kaepernick actually used his platform to encourage people to not vote. That is part of Stephen A. Smith's argument, and I've heard him make it more explicitly on the radio, that Colin Kaepernick indirectly is a reason why Donald Trump is president, because Colin Kaepernick was telling young people to not vote in the lead-up to the election. This is so frustrating, because all it would have taken for Stephen A. Smith to do would be a Google search. And you would know that Colin Kaepernick made his statement about not voting after the election. It was the weekend after the election. So spreading lies as a way to bash Colin Kaepernick and a way to bash a great person like Michael Bennett is beneath contempt. But hey, enough of my yakking about this. I think people should hear what Michael Bennett had to say about Stephen A. Smith's verbal diarrhea. Michael Bennett put out a statement on Instagram, and I've got my co-producer, David
1: Tigabu, who is going to read that for you, in case you missed it. Despite your words, I want this interaction to be positive. We can agree on one thing, voting is important, and I never said it wasn't. But it's so easy to talk on television and not get your hands dirty and do the real work. It's so easy to divide people by playing on fears and lies instead of trying to highlight the hard work that athletes do in the community. I know by responding to you, I'm just making your job easier by giving you something else to yell about tomorrow, but you are spreading so much ignorance that it's hard to be silent. You tell us we don't know anything, but we stand alongside people who have dedicated their lives to try and make change we're stepping out on our platform to make a real substantial impact while you play the clown you say we don't know anything yet we are the ones sitting down and talking with Angela Davis John Carlos and community activists you don't even know these are people whose respect we care about a great deal more than someone who gets paid just to be loud I've spent countless hours in minority communities from orphanages in Haiti to juvenile detention centers in this country, building community gardens so our young people living in food deserts without anywhere to buy food other than a corner store have better nutrition. Please be a better person other than someone who is just all talk and no action. I encourage you to join me in person and checkbook and help. Build up our communities.
3: That was Michael Bennett's response to Stephen A. Smith as read by David Digaboo. NFL Scout for Bleacher Report, Doug Ferrar. So, Doug, first and foremost, you're a scout. You're someone who I know loves looking at the tape. And before we get into any politics, I know you did a full excavation of Colin Kaepernick's 2016 season. One of the big arguments against him, of course, is that he just can't play the quarterback position anymore. What did you see?
2: It's interesting because there are sort of two Kaepernick on field history is when you take away all the ancillary stuff, there's the Harbaugh version of Kaepernick and there's what has happened after with Tom Sula and his staff and that whole dumpster fire. And then the chip Kelly dumpster fire. He's sort of gone from dumpster fire to dumpster fire. And, you know, as intrigued as I would have been to see him in Kyle Shanahan system where he would have been an intriguing fit. Um, you know, under Harbaugh, it was a lot of play action. It was a lot of deep stuff off the run game And it was a lot of sort of structured improvisation in and out of the pocket, which ideally fit his skill set. What I saw last year was a quarterback who threw 16 touchdowns and four interceptions in an offense that should be locked in a shed. I mean, it was just (laughs) it was horrible. Jeremy Curley was the leading receiver. You know, it was a lot of quick, quick, quick. And they took away, I mean, he ran about half the play action last year that he did under Harbaugh. Um, you know, so it, short version in my excavation, as you, as you put it, my Folsom excavation, mm-hmm. um, I saw a guy who is limited in the general sense. And when I say limited, I don't mean he's limited in that he can play in the NFL. I mean, he's limited as a starting quarterback. I think he would be one of the two or three best backups in the NFL. I think he would be a top 25 starting quarterback. I'd put him in the mid 20s or so. But in an NFL where Mike Glennon gets $45 million and Christian Hackenberg may make starts this year and the Buccaneers just signed Ryan Fitzpatrick, who threw six interceptions in one game last year uh, to play behind Jameis Winston. This all looks highly suspect. There are, you know, are there quarterbacks better than Colin Kaepernick? You bet. But are there guys who are projected starters in the NFL right now who are far worse? Without question. I think he's a middle-of-the-pack quarterback. I think there is a ceiling. But when we talk about why he remains unsigned as of May nineteenth, two 2017, if you're looking at the tape, it's really hard to argue that there aren't other issues at hand and that you know whether it's the money he wants he said i want to be a starter and those things have been rumored and not proven whether it's you know teams being opposed to his funny they call it off-field concerns he doesn't have any off-field concerns he does all this charity
3: yeah
2: they have on-field concerns because he takes a knee because he speaks his mind um you know, frankly, I think the whole thing is entirely ridiculous.
3: Yeah, and that's where I wanted to, to get to next with you is because you know this league, uh, you've interviewed executives, you uh, met owners and have spoken to them as well. I mean, and so the psychology of how something like this works, which certainly by any measure of football looks like a political blackballing. I mean, do you think, if you had to guess, That we're talking about people in a room saying, look, we need to send a shot across the bow at all political athletes so they know that this is not accepted. Is it more of like a vibe where NFL owners, I mean, this is the culture that they've created because we all know that that can operate in very nefarious, unspoken ways. I mean, for goodness sakes, there was never a law against in Major League Baseball against having black players before 1947. Sure. I mean, they're just it just was and it wasn't discussed. Um, Until it was pushed, of course, uh, by, by Branch Rickey. So that's, I guess, my question to you is how does the shunning of Kaepernick, how does that operate institutionally?
2: I don't think it's the same thing as the the quote-unquote gentleman's agreement that kept African-American players out of Major League Baseball until Jackie Robinson came through in 1947. And I don't think it's sort of a cabal of evil people in a room like the collusion stuff in the 80s with, with, with MLB. I don't think it's like that. I think mean, it's a few things. And my colleague at Bleacher Report, Mike Freeman, has – eloquently and, and very precisely detailed. Let's, let's
3: call Mike Freeman patiently because <laughs> yeah. he has to deal with so much response from people. Oh my God. It, yeah. <laughs> or Mike.
2: Um, but he's talked to multiple executives in the league who, because of their own political leanings, place Kaepernick on the same level as a Ray Carruth. And it, mm. th- essentially this guy will never play on my team and it has absolutely nothing to do with what he can accomplish on the field. That's part one. Part two is, and I, don't, I think this is more subconscious than something any owner or coach or GM would say. The NFL, throughout its history, has been a very conservative sport. It's been a very groupthink sport. You want all your guys on the same page. Individual thinking and it's funny because I say this, I live in Seattle, where it's very beautiful and sunny right
3: now. Oh. Um, and uh, I've been, I, I'm melting in yeah. D.C., so oh, thanks yeah. for that. And <laughs> for uh, more ways than one, we're melting in D.C. Well, yeah, the whole thing is melting.
2: Um, you know, And I, I've covered the Pete Carroll Seahawks since 2010. And I know you know this because I was at your event with Michael Bennett up here a couple months ago. Um, Pete is one of the rare coaches who, A, runs the thing, and B, lets his players be his players. Most coaches don't want that. And you look at a guy like Kaepernick who has experimented with a vegan diet and has, you know, lost a lot of weight and, oh, now he's, you know, too small to beat, you know. There's always an excuse to shun a player who speaks his mind freely. Kaepernick is going to go his own way. And I think for a lot of, whether it's a coach, a quarterback coach, a head coach, a GM, a scout, anyone in that room, when the decisions are to be made, I think there is a subconscious. I would bet that half the guys who have a problem with him being an individual don't even know that they have a problem with him being an individual. But Kaepernick is very much a one-off. You know, He's a white tiger. He just goes his own way, and he's going to do his own thing. And that's one side of it. But as I've said for a long time, Three of the most autocratic coaches I've ever seen are Chris Salt at Nevada, Jim Harbaugh anywhere, and Chip Kelly anywhere. And Kaepernick has succeeded beyond what a lot of quarterbacks would do with all three of those guys. He loves to be coached hard.
3: And can I just say, and winning them over personally too. Yes,
2: without question. Now, is he an alpha personality-wise? You know this as well as I do because we both talked to him. He's not an alpha dog. He's Mm -hmm. not a rah-rah... He is a thinker. He, is, he, he will think and then do. He will think and then say. None of this is off the cuff. So there, there are personal dynamics to Kaepernick that I think make people in the league uncomfortable, not so much because of him, but because he's so different from your average quarterback. And generally speaking, if you're going to be that, you know that yourself, and you're not going to be the Sonny Jurgensen, Bobby Lane, Brett Favre, Jim McMahon sort of rogue guy, which everyone loves that guy in the NFL. Um, but unless you're the the talent of an Aaron Rodgers or a Tom Brady, a transcendent talent, it's going to be really hard for you to find a place in the league when you think for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, again, I don't think half the guys who believe that would admit it not because they're lying because they don't understand there's just such a culture of groupthink in the nfl and when you get a guy who sort of goes to his own drum it's just there's a barrier there that i think is part of the kaepernick problem that we're really not talking about but i i I think it's an issue Mm.
3: i was just uh racking my own brain if there was an example of the lovable carousing rogue quarterback who wasn't white i was really trying to think this through no, there's not. No, I mean, and, and when there's been black quarterbacks, you don't need, you don't
2: who, need to ruminate through your head, Dave. We both. Yeah. Know the answer to
3: that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't get too far there. And and when there have been black quarterbacks who've gotten in trouble, it's and even for for matters, large or small, you know, thinking of people like Michael Vick. There, there almost has to be like this public penance and you have to walk the stations of the Tony Dungy cross to even get another chance.
2: Yeah, Tony Dungy, who apparently equated uh, Kaepernick to Joe Mixon this last yeah. week.
3: It's really fun. That's what's so frustrating, too. It's like the, the works that he does being equated with incredibly antisocial and destructive acts, which I think reveals, frankly, more than they want it to reveal, and maybe subconsciously as well. Because I don't think anybody consciously could be like, yeah, Ray Carruth you know, try, having, some, having his pregnant girlfriend killed— that, that's just as bad as trying to teach kids about nutrition and their legal rights.
2: Well, let's, let's take the Dungy thing for a second because he is universally beloved in the NFL as a you know, man of faith, man of principle, man of conscience, football genius. Some people don't know that before Pete Carroll and John Snyder came to Seattle, the search firm that was looking to replace Jim Moore and Tim Ruskell, they wanted to give Tony Dungy the whole thing they essentially wanted him to run the Seahawks however he would see fit and he turned the offer down but that's what people in the NFL think of Tony Dungy now i don't know tony dungy i don't want to get into personality stuff but when you look back at the michael sam situation and michael sam was going to be a borderline NFL player anyway just purely based on talent i don't think he was a starter i think he was a back you know he was going to be a rotational guy at best but when Tony Dungy comes out and says, distraction,
3: mm.
2: that's what I'm talking about with cat, You're a distraction. Well, a distraction from what? A distraction from the groupthink of the NFL, which again, if you sat Tony Dungy down and said, look, understand how that sounds. Understand what that means beyond your own eyesight. He may then realize it, but I think this is a subconscious thing where you start to, you're a distraction. Well, Joe Mixon isn't a distraction. Tyreek Hill wasn't a distraction. Mm-hmm. The, the coaches and the GMs, they will get on that podium and they will go to bat over and over for those guys. And it's always the same, you know, the young man made a mistake. The young man has learned. The young man is in the right environment. And, you know, the hit rate is iffy at best. But then you talk about someone who comes culturally, socially, sexually, religiously different into the nfl or back into the nfl in kaepernick's case and all of a sudden that's
3: a problem well, let me let me throw um, something back that you mentioned a couple minutes ago you mentioned seattle as you well know rumor mill in full tilt about the idea of kaepernick signing in Seattle. How real do you think that is, and why does that fit make sense is my second question, and if you can keep up with this. The third question is, does signing Colin Kaepernick actually mean, and this is one of the arguments we hear, that an NFL team will lose money?
2: Uh Well, let's go with the third thing first. No, and it's idiotic. Um it- <laughs>
3: i got that like three times today of people being like oh he'll hurt their bottom line i'm like dude it's called revenue sharing a and b it's called tv contracts that are going on for years nobody's losing money
2: right um as far as you know what does it mean here's what we know john schneider the seahawks gm reached out to kaepernick's people his representatives and, and there is interest now, I, I'm not an insider like an Adam Schefter or a Jay Glazer, you know, Rappaport or whoever. So I don't know, you know, how far up the tree everyone's going. Um, I will say this. And when I wrote my tape piece on Ka- Kaepernick in March, I said there is no better fit for him than Seattle. And the more I look at it, the more I believe that. And there are a host of reasons. Let's start with socially. Um, my girlfriend's daughter is was a cheerleader at Garfield High last year. So I saw every Garfield high football game, and it was a really interesting time to do that, A, because they were good for the first time in uh, you know 100 years because Garfield's a basketball school and a very good one, <laughs> and also where, uh, where Jimi Hendrix went to high school.
3: Yeah, and Quincy Jones.
2: There you go. So yeah, they got a hell of a jazz band too, um, and there are Garfield pugs for the day. Uh, From the first game, and this was the players, the coaches, the principal of the school, all the administration, all the teachers, those kids were taking knees in support of and in solidarity with what Kaepernick was saying. And it was the last year's game when the Niners played up in Seattle. I was able to talk to Kaepernick about it in the Niners locker room, and he talked about how much that meant to him. So let's, let's start with socially. This is a city, especially Seattle's inner city. These kids hold him in such high regard. And I get emotional thinking about it, you know, him up here doing what he does in a in a very thoughtful, structured, nonviolent way. I, I think off the field, he could be a real difference maker in these communities. And I, I would be I think it would be a lovely thing. Let's talk about on the field. Again, we're talking He's at his best when he's a play action guy, Uh, long passes, you know, shot plays off of play action, which is in structure what Seattle's offense is. He's a very mobile quarterback. Teams have learned to stop playing man defense against him because when you have man cornerbacks like tight on your receivers, those cornerbacks have to turn their heads when they're covering. This is why he ran for 5,000 yards against the Green Bay Packers every time he played them. And teams have actually had to alter their coverage against his mobility, which sounds weird, but it's true. Um, thirdly, this is what the Seahawks want to do. They want to spend 12 bucks on their offensive line, and as long as that is going through, their offensive line is going to be average at absolute best and putrid most of the time. So what you have is an offense where the structure lasts about 1.5 seconds. The average play would be about 3.5. And after that, everything is outside of structure because the pocket breaks down. Well, Seattle has what I would call plays of designed anarchy where, okay, Russell, once the play breaks down and we concede, um, as Betsy DeVos once said, I concede the point, we concede the point that. Everyone's gonna rush in, that our guys are gonna get overwhelmed. Russell, you have to make this happen. So they have plays in which their receivers are told to, okay, you gotta as you're running your route, let's say you're running a dig route, 15 yards, and you have to then break off after 12 yards and follow Russell. Doug Baldwin is probably the best at this in the league because he's mm-hmm. he's had to do it so often. So, when people say Kaepernick can't play within structure, A, that's a bit of a canard, and B, in Seattle, the fact that he is very good at designing offense and producing offense outside of structure actually makes him a perfect fit. It almost makes too much sense, Dave.
3: There's an article in the Sporting News today that says Seahawks are now the only team left after the Fitzpatrick signing that Kaepernick... Even independent of politics, could conceivably find a home. Do you Do you agree with that? Mm, uh, not necessarily. Um, I mean, just in a you, league with Scott Tolzien's and non guaranteed contracts, it seems like you could find a place for him.
2: Yeah. Well, for God's sake, the Jets that quarterback situation. It, but again, you have an owner who's a, a longtime Trump buddy, so that's not going to happen. Uh, or probably isn't going to happen. I mean, it, it, it has to take sort of a, a specific conflagration of things in that. It, I mean, Paul Allen, the Seahawks owner is mute. He doesn't get involved at all. Pete runs the thing. Well, Pete going back to his time in the nineties, um, has always encouraged his players to be themselves, as you know. Um, Richard Sherman, Michael Bennett, Cliff Averill, a whole bunch of guys have said, we don't understand why Kaepernick's not in the league. Now, Sherman and Bennett and Averill and all these guys, they've played against Kaepernick as much as anybody, more than anybody when you consider the postseason stuff. They know how good he can be and what the limitations are. So Pete has a very open office door. This I know. If his players want to come to him and say, look, man, we need this guy. Because Russell played through a ton of injuries last year, um, and Travon Boykin, the only you know the backup, the only thing he's proven to be you know elite at is getting arrested lately. So yeah. that's a problem. They don't really have a backup situation. So you you start to wonder if they've been sort of monitoring this all along. And then the question becomes, and I don't know the answer to this, but the question becomes: A, how much does he want? And B, does he want a shot at being? a starter without injury. Um, Seahawks are fairly up against it on the cap and there's no way he's going to start unless Wilson's hurt. So does he want to invest in himself and do the Jim Plunkett thing where you, you know, gets booted out of his first team and sits on the bench for a while and then is able to, you know, either with the Seahawks down the road or with another team over time, sort of quote unquote proving his worth again as a quarterback. Um, That, to me, is really the only – those are the only outstanding questions is how much does he want and how much of a role does he want to come in with sort of guaranteed.
3: We'll be right back with Doug Farrar from Bleacher Report. But first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we are living in a time where the need for unembedded media that unapologetically afflicts the powerful is an absolute necessity. Please support The Nation magazine. Just go to thenation.com slash subscribe. You're supporting a series of remarkable writers and also you are supporting the very existence of this podcast. It costs nary a thing and the content you get is utterly indispensable. Thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to Doug Ferrar. Okay, I'm going to now shift gears from all this cap talk, and that was really helpful though, though, Doug. Thank you. You went above and beyond there, and I know I appreciate it, and my listeners will appreciate it. On a different subject, Robert Mueller. <laughs> I've been thinking about this a great deal. <laughs> I know you have. I, I retweeted
2: your uh, tweets. St- yeah. Your, uh, tweet
3: st- there. And and, I, and oh, then then you, you know some of my thinking about Robert Mueller, that there's some insight, at least, into how he's going to handle this Trump investigation based upon how he handled the Ray Rice investigation. Um, I'm going to be speaking some thoughts about it a little later in this podcast, but I would love your thoughts as someone who was uh, keeping track of what was happening with that Ray Rice investigation with the Mueller report. Maybe you think I'm completely wrong that there's any insight that can be gained into how he'll approach this based on how he approached the NFL but I, I just would love your thoughts on it to see, do we get anything out of looking at the Ray Rice investigation in terms of understanding how he's going to approach Trump? I mean, there there may be some insight. As you said in your thread, he was a deodorizer, not
2: an exterminator. Um, and I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, Mueller is, and, and most good prosecutors of any stripe want to hold a balance between ferreting out and removing whatever the problem is with holding up the structure of the establishment. And with Goodell, it's a harder thing because I would say his, most of Goodell's issues have to do with ineptitude as opposed to pure evil. Mm-hmm. And with Trump, it's sort of the combo
3: platter. You get everything. <laughs> um, so, I've often said, by the way, that I will take evil cut with ineptitude over evil cut with skill any day of the week. By yeah, the
2: way. Well, and, and yeah, by the way, President Pence is almost scarier than President yeah. Trump for that reason. Um, so when it comes to Mueller in the Trump situation, this is – it. it's different. It's as if the Ray Rice thing had happened after a collusion like in baseball in the 80s, -hmm. um, to hold down salaries because you have all this funny stuff with the FBI. I think, A, the scope of it, and B, the level of violation is far greater. And as much as Mueller will have to strike that balance between destruction and establishment, I, I can't imagine even, you know, as four square and two the middle as he has to be, there's no way to look at this objectively and go, Jesus H. Christ, we have to do something here. And it, within that structure, this is going to take longer than people think, and it's going to be frustrating, and people are going to go, damn it, why aren't you doing more quickly? Well, he can't do more quickly. That's, that's not his job. He has to do more correctly. And correctly is more important than quickly. So, you know, I, I think— But
3: do you have faith, though? I mean, because my argument has nothing to do with Mueller's uh, competency. Like, he will get done the investigation that he wants to get done. Right. And so that, that, that's where I'm sort of left. It's like, what, for, does the NFL thing tell us anything about the kind of investigation that he will want to get done?
2: Well, again, we're talking about um, it's like comparing apples to neutron bombs.
3: It,
2: when it when it comes to a post-Trump sort of hellscape, however that works, whether it's resignation or impeachment or whatever. Um, A few things are going to have to happen in whatever sequential order. First of all, the investigation will have to be complete. And if it turns up what we all pretty much think it will turn up, it will prove a lot of things that there's no way that Donald Trump can be president after that. Now, what has to happen then is a Republican House and a Republican Senate will have to be full enough of self-preservation in any craven sense to, they're not going to do the right thing. They're going to do the thing that preserves their careers. So that's the first balance. If that doesn't work, we have to wait until early 2019 when I believe both the House and the Senate will flip Democrat. And then it's World War III. And you know, things finally happen that should have happened all along. Um, do I have faith? I wouldn't go that far. I just sort of look at the way the blocks will be stacked against him, um, and over time, I I don't see any way he completes his term, but we may be a year and a half away from that actually happening, or more. I mean, this this is not going to happen overnight, and Trump is going to dig his heels in until he knows he's done. And it's funny because people are starting to come up with Nixon comparisons. If you read the final days by Woodward and Bernstein, it, the the comparisons to Nixon are astonishing. It's almost like Trump and his people said, "We're going to go in there and we're going to start with Nixon in 1972, and this is how we're going to run it." Yeah, d- down to the note he
3: sent Flynn: to "Stay yes. strong," which is exactly yes. what Nixon sent Haldeman.
2: It is hilarious. So, what happened there? People knew in 1972 pretty much just how greasy Nixon was. And it took until 1974 for him to boot himself out. Now, in, in lieu of Woodward and Bernstein, we now have Twitter. And we have an aggregation of news unprecedented in world history. So we're on the same track there. You know, I, I have faith that Trump will off himself politically I
3: I don't have necessarily faith that he'll get enough help in doing it. Interesting, very interesting indeed. I really did want to get your insight because you're you're so political on social media. And just and- to
2: break in, the funny thing is, I wasn't until about November ninth. If if <laughs> you know if anyone were for God knows what reason to go back and look at my Twitter timeline, it never happened before this last election frame, but it
3: became, if not now, when? Right. So, so how long have you been a sports writer? Like where did you get started?
2: Uh, I started with my own website in 2001. um, And then there was this uh, Seahawks fan site called Seahawks.net. I started writing for them. They merged with Fox sports in 2005. It was through scout.com. The Probably the biggest thing was um, because I've been a Bill James guy since the 80s, reading his abstracts and Mm -hmm. all that. And then I discovered Football Outsiders in 2004, and I'm like, oh my God, it's Bill James for football. So I started uh, pestering the owner, Aaron Schatz. You know, I'll work spec. I'll do, I don't care. I just want to write for you. Um, In 2005, I did some spec stuff. In 2006, I became part of the staff and that was really like, boom, now I'm part of the, the most amazing think tank ever because we had like Bill Barnwell and Mike Tanya and Aaron himself, just this ungodly group of football geniuses. And I learned so much from them. And that also, you know, ESPN, ESPN, the magazine, blah, 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 all these different outlets that wanted what FO did. Um, and then in 2009 Yahoo approached Barnwell uh, who's now at ESPN, and he couldn't do the Yahoo thing, so he referred me, um, and that's when I became full time in 2009.
3: And, and during that, you mentioned that your social media wasn't political before uh, November yeah. 9th, but um, but were you political, like in your personal life during this period? I mean, was it more just you were keeping up on the news? Did you have any political outlets that you that you used to express what you thought about, whether it was the Bush years or? Or, or anything in the Obama years? I mean, can you give us any insight there?
2: Mm, I think I've always been more political as it applies to sports. Um, and, you know, I, I, I try, have always tried to keep informed. You know, I want to know my history with anything, so when I get out there and start, you know, shooting my mouth off, I at least have half a chance of being right. You know, I've, I've always, in my head, thought it was important to know where we stood as a nation, as a, as a planet. But I was never really, I was never overtly political until I saw the desperate need.
3: And did you ever think when you were writing about sports, uh, when you got the job at Football Outsiders, did you ever think that you would be this guy, like writing this much about politics, staying this in tune with what was happening?
2: uh well I've been mean, going through Yahoo and then si where I went in 2013 and, and bleach report since last year um Yahoo not so much si because I was more of a general football writer I started to do a lot I think where it turned for me I was at Yahoo when the 2012 lockout happened and that really opened my eyes to how football worked and how it wasn't so (laughs) it wasn't as buddy buddy as people thought and you know i i had always been very interested in and involved in the discussion of labor and sports marvin miller is is one of my great icons um as i know he is one of yours
3: so the politics of sports was really a conduit for you yeah, to it really was. your politics.
2: So during that whole summer of the lockout, I really, I got charged into it. I was also writing for a site called Sports Press Northwest, Art Teal, a longtime Seattle post Intelligencer guy and someone I greatly admire, um, had hired me. And so through that and through SI, it was more of a political voice. When Bleacher Report hired me last July, they said, we have this thing called NFL 1000, we want you to run it. So what I do with VR is entirely tape
3: mm. you're studying the tape
2: it was funny that it, at, at the same time my football writing and and happily so was put it was funneled far more in the direction of X's and O's my social pontifications became far more political I guess part of it is just having that balance and again part of it is if not now when it was kind of a perfect storm of or, for those who follow me on Twitter, probably an imperfect storm, but there you go.
3: Well, and then here, here's kind of like the the money question that I that I've wanted to ask you, because that that's always the way it's been for me. This is sort of what I'm dealing with here: is that I talked about politics and wrote about politics and spoke about politics through sports. Does it ever feel insufficient now for you? And I'm even talking about like doing the tape work, like looking at what's happening in this country looking at what a flaming dumpster fire is being created i mean does it ever become hard to put your work hat on and talk about uh you know the benefits of a nickel package uh versus uh, press man to man
2: one of the by the most... way i don't even
3: know if that made sense the nickel package I was, just, <laughs> I was trying to say something that sounded football outsidery
2: you faked it very well um one of the things that people said after 9-11 was if we are not able to do blah, 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 the terrorists have won. And it turned into a meme and sort of a joke, but I think there is something to that. If we can't enjoy our lives um, and, and, you know, in, enjoy the fruits of our labors and, you know, all the things we are inherently bound to do with our intellects and our talents and our geniuses, whatever they may be, um, it, you know, to me, in, in an era like this, with this particular "quote unquote" president and this particular administration, I think it behooves us more than ever to aspire to greatness in whatever we do. Um, so it gives me more of a kick in the ass to whether I'm, whether I'm doing tape or I'm writing or I'm. The interesting thing is I, you know, was a musician in my teens and my twenties and in the last year or so I've like built my studio back up and bought a bunch of guitars and I'm doing more of that now. And and it's that need for creative expression. There is a defiance in creative expression when you have an administration that wants to shut it all down.
3: Yeah.
2: There's a rebellion to that. There is a, there is a futuristic pushing forward of. Um, I don't know how R-rated you are on this thing, so I'll just say, "F you, Trump." You know, I'm going to produce this beauty. I'm going to take the football discussion a little bit further, and if it intersects like with the Kaepernick tape piece, that's great. But it's also about you know I'm writing an article about Deshaun Watson uh, that's that's due Monday. I did a thing on backfields. To me, it's all important. And it, it is more important than ever for all, whether it's you doing all your writing and your podcast or me doing what I do or anyone, you know, I wouldn't want anyone to say to themselves, something I do is more meaningless than it used to be because Donald flipping Trump is the president. Because if you think that Trump wins, the terrorists win and we can't have that. <laughs>
3: Very well put, (laughs) honestly. Uh, Doug Doug Farrar, thank you so much for joining us here. My pleasure, man. Anytime. On the Edge of Sports Podcast. I feel like I owe you a drink now. This was therapeutic for me.
2: Well, you do, so get your ass back up to Seattle.
3: damn straight. (laughs) Wow. Thanks so much, Doug. My pleasure. That was Doug Farrar, ladies and gents. Please follow us stuff on Bleacher Report and... His Twitter feed for me has become utterly, utterly indispensable, and I'm not alone in any way saying that. That would be at BR underscore Doug Farrar, all one word, Doug, F-A-R-R-A-R. And now it's time for some choice words. I want to speak a little bit about Robert Mueller his appointment as special counsel to investigate Donald Trump's connections to Russia's hacking of the 2016 elections, and what Robert Mueller's Ray Rice reports for the National Football League might tell us about how he's going to approach this investigation. Look, I believe that the way Robert Mueller handled the NFL Ray Rice case in 2014 actually tells us a great deal. First of all, in the NFL Ray Rice case, Robert Mueller was awash in conflict of interest. He worked for a law firm called Wilmer Hale that had represented or represented at that time several members of the highest up officials in the National Football League. One of the partners at Wilmer Hale actually was a CEO of the Washington football team for six years. That's how embedded they were with one another. Now, people might know that Robert Mueller has stepped down from Wilmer Hale to conduct this Trump investigation, but this law firm actually represents a lot of the interests of Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, so those conflict of interests remain. That's what happens when you have ruling class people investigate ruling class people. You find out that there's just a big old spit tree being passed back and forth. Now, what, let's talk about this Roger Goodell investigation into Ray Rice. People might remember the report and what it produced— what he did was he found fault with Roger Goodell in the NFL. He said they should have acted more proactively on the Ray Rice case. But he also fundamentally preserved all the power players because the biggest charge was that the NFL actually covered up the videotape of Ray Rice striking his then-fiancee, Janae Palmer. And Robert Mueller was very public and very explicit about the fact that That there's no way that the NFL did that, even though it was reported by the Associated Press, and even though they had an audio recording of a woman at the NFL offices saying that she received the tape. So in other words, what Roger Goodell was at the end of the day was he was a deodorizer, not an exterminator, as Doug Farrar said. He produced a report that both critiqued the NFL while allowing a bruised Roger Goodell who was hanging on to his job by his fingernails to proclaim a measure of exoneration. Remember that blueprint. This idea of bruising people in power while allowing them to stay in power. Meanwhile, what Robert Mueller did was he kept the scope of his investigation extremely narrow. He was investigating whether or not the tape had been seen and whether or not it had been covered up. What he let slide was the issue that would have crushed Roger Goodell, which was the systematic ignoring of domestic violence throughout Roger Goodell's tenure. Remember, the first 55 players accused of domestic violence under Goodell's tenure resulted in the commissioner absolutely sitting on his hands. Jerry Angelo, who's one of the high-up executive owners with the Chicago Bears, said that hundreds of cases were ignored by the National Football League. Robert Mueller ignored this part of the investigation, the part that would have ended Goodell and kept the narrow focus that resulted in a chiding. Now, I have no idea where Trump Gate will go, but I think the most important thing to remember is that Robert Mueller is an institutionalist. He's straight out of Princeton. He is a white-shoe law firm, FBI, straight-arrow, G-man personality. If he feels that Donald Trump has threatened institutions of power in this country like the Constitution, like the executive branch, like the law enforcement entity that is the Federal Bureau of Investigations, then Trump may well be toast. But if he feels it would actually be more destabilizing to this country to bring justice, then justice could very well be delayed or denied. Just some things to keep in mind about Robert Mueller. That's the most important thing to remember. A deodorizer, not an exterminator and much more interested in preserving institutions as a greater good than taking down the powerful. Okay, rant done. And now a quick word from the other podcast that is produced and hosted by The Nation magazine, thenation.com, and that is Start Making Sense, hosted by the great John Wiener. Folks, please check out this podcast. It is politics without the boring parts. Their guests are remarkable. The talk is crackling. I listen to it every week. It posts at thenation.com every Thursday. And now, back to Edge of Sports. Now, before we wrap up the show, I want to read a listener email I received from a woman named Elisa Gale. Because she says some really kind words, which I want to repeat, about what the podcast means to her. But also, this is more important. She's asking about a particular area of research at the intersection of sports and politics, and I didn't have an answer for her. And if you do have an answer, give us a call at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. This is what Elisa wrote. Thank you for your incredibly awesome pods and writings. It's always been alienating being a passionate sports fan and also a self-identified queer revolutionary anti-oppression socialist. And she writes, wait, what? How is it even possible to love sports? So, heartfelt thanks for creating space for those of us that find ourselves sitting in giant ballparks of inner turmoil, conflict, and paradoxes. Also, huge thanks for all your awesome speaking out. Also, thank you for all the amazing interviews, especially with courageous athletes who are rising up in the face of racism, anti Muslim hatred, and injustice. I especially love that you interview amazing women doing this great work. I read Jessica Luther's incredible book and especially appreciated her discussion about intersections of misogyny, violence against women, and the racist criminal injustice system. I'm a diehard Mets fan, arg, and I know her pain, in Toronto, and the Mets are doing a beautiful job being role models in how to not give a shit about domestic violence. Aside from MLB's complete sham of a policy, I have a question about the intersections of violence against women, racist police profiling, surveillance, and athletes. Not sure if you might have written about this or covered it, but I'd be super grateful if you might know of someone doing this research. All of the players recently charged in MLB, Familia Reyes Chapman Oliveira, have been racialized and specifically Latino athletes. While mainstream sports journals have no analysis of the ways in which the system protects men, there also seems to be a piece missing in terms of why racialized players are criminalized, surveilled, profiled, charged, etc. in a very specific way. I'd really be interested in your thoughts, interviews with anyone doing this research, etc. In solidarity and with much gratitude, Alyssa. Alyssa. Yeah, thank you so much, Alyssa. I'll put it out again, 4014263343. Anybody out there doing this kind of research, or if you can recommend a journalist who's doing this kind of research about the intersection of racialized surveillance and violence against women in sports, it is a fascinating intersection, not merely the double standard about how white athletes and non-white athletes are treated in instances of violence against women, but actually looking at some of the research of how surveillance operates. In this matrix I think that would be utterly fascinating 401-426-3343 Give me a call if you have any recommendations About who to talk to One more note Before we say goodbye Last week we got a terrific phone call From a woman named Sabiha And I called her Sabina And I apologize for that And I appreciate all of our listeners So I apologize Sabiha For mispronouncing your first name And one last thing I want to say, thank you to everybody out there who's gone to our page at iTunes and written a review and given us a rating. It makes a huge difference. I wish I could thank you all by name. iTunes changed their functions, which makes it impossible for me to see your names. That's really annoying to me. But just know we see it. We appreciate it. It makes a huge difference. And thank you to everybody who made our show last week about the Know Your Rights Camp of Colin Kaepernick one of our most listened to shows ever. You can go to edgesportspodcast.com to catch up on that or any of the back episodes of this podcast. Thank you to my co-producers, Dan Baker and David Tigabu. Thank you, Doug Farrar. We are out of here. Stay frosty, people. Peace.